morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, May 10th, we are studying Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. In today's text, John is given a vision of the exalted Son of Man, Jesus, who tells John to write down the things that he sees. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Peter Ill. Pastor Ill serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor Ill, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Glad to get to be here with you again. Welcome to Godfrey as well. Thanks. Glad to have you today, Pastor Ill. We get to talk about Revelation chapter 1 this morning. Before we look at Revelation chapter 1 particularly, tell me, why do Christians need the book of Revelation? Just give me your general thoughts on the book. Revelation is all about Jesus, and this is God's word to us, especially about how we live in his church in these days of persecution, in these days of trial. And so in all that we do, we need to continually be focused and fixated on Jesus who comes and appears to us in his glory, not only as he does to John, but even as he does for us week in and week out in the preaching of his word and in the giving of his sacraments. And so this is a comfort to Christians who, I mean, sometimes it gets hard to be a Christian and say, man, this is so repetitive, and it's like we're doing the same thing all over again, and and it's like Groundhog Day, and, and nothing seems to really be changing for us. And why is God taking so long to reveal his glory and to make himself known to us? Well, the truth is, one day when John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day there on the island of Patmos, Jesus shows up, and Jesus has something to show him to encourage him in those repetitive days of his exile. And as we live here as sojourners and exiles on earth, we have those same things that were revealed to John, revealed through John to us, so that we see Jesus And this sharpens our faith in a way that we can say, God has something to say to me so that I don't grow weary, so that I don't uh, start to just zone out or, or stop appreciating all of his gifts to us. Instead, we get to see all of his gifts and recognize, I don't want to say the novelty, but the the hugely beyond wordsness of of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is revealed to us uh, forever. All right, so we got a book all about Jesus. We are in the last part of chapter one today. What have we seen so far in the book of Revelation leading up to the text we've got today? So far, it starts out with a few words about the introduction, that this is the revelation uh, of Jesus Christ to John. And then it goes on to talk just a little bit about uh, that traditional uh, greetings of an epistle of John identifying himself and saying who he's writing to. Uh, But pretty quickly, John picks up with the action, where some of the other epistles, especially Paul, uh, he'll kind of go for 
for half a chapter or more in the normal conventions of first century letter writing. John has some really important stuff to write down because Jesus showed him something and said, write this down and get the word out. And so John doesn't waste a whole lot of time uh, identifying himself and, and using a lot of flowery words. He says pretty much, I'm John. It's, this is to the seven churches because Jesus told me to. Uh, here it is. This is what happened, guys. Uh, and, and so... Uh, he picks up with the action right here at the beginning of our reading today at verse 9. And and this is really the beginning of the action part. There is going to be more of that identification of who's receiving this letter uh, as, uh, as those words are given by Jesus to John uh, about the seven churches. But uh, that's that's somebody else's task for a different day. That's uh, not us today. That's right. Well, we will take those letters one at a time later on Sharper Iron. The various churches receive epistles to each one of them. But as you said, the way that this entire book starts, it does have the flavor of an epistle in the sense that John identifies himself. He says to whom he's writing. He writes about the one who is giving this message, and he's, we've talked about that yesterday. Today we do get into the action, which is where this book does start to separate itself from, say, St. Paul's epistles. Those letters don't really have action per se, but in the book of Revelation, stuff happens. We're going to, to take a look at things that have happened and things that will happen and things that are happening to John at the moment. We've got past, present, and future all in the book of Revelation. What we get in today's text is the start of all that. And John is going to see it in a vision. So talk a little bit about visions in the New Testament and the scriptures. What should we understand by that when we read about this vision that St. John gets today? Visions have an important place throughout all of scripture. And we talk about visions that, say, Abram had back in the book of Genesis uh, or that, uh, that appeared during the book of Exodus. Uh, certainly Isaiah had visions, thinking of that uh, vision in Isaiah 6 of the heavenly throne room. Jeremiah had visions. And for the prophets, God speaking through visions was a, a normal thing. Uh, in the New Testament, we don't see visions quite so often. One of the biggest ones that we might think of is the vision that Stephen the martyr had uh, as he was being stoned of seeing Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. Uh, but for the most part, no other vision in Scripture, maybe with the exception of Ezekiel, is this long and with so many details. Uh, this is, uh, seems to be one vision, uh, and so the word revelation or, or vision that's used in Revelation 1-1 is, is singular. Um, and every once in a while, it's one of my pet peeves, people will talk about the book of Revelations, and it just, oh, it's like fingers on a chalkboard to me, uh, and I need to get over it. But but I'm not there yet. But uh, this, is, this is a single and unified revelation from what we know of what John has written. And so we have this, this revelation. Uh, the Greek word for revelation is, is apocalypse. And sometimes people will talk about the apocalypse or the end of the world, but uh, when something is revealed or something is uncovered, the Greek word for that is, is apocalypse. And so it's not that this is scary, uh, you know, in, in a end-of-the-world-as-we-know-it kind of a way, but rather that this is the uncovering, the revealing, and the making known of God's power and majesty and grace for us. And so this is a gospel-centered vision. Uh, 
some of the divisions in other places in Scripture, especially in the book of Ezekiel, can be really kind of scary. Uh, it's very hard to convert them to things that we can, can understand. All of these, like we said before, are centered on who, or all of this is centered on who Jesus is and what Jesus does and on his grace. This is given to Christians for their comfort out of the gospel, not a statement of what we need to do or, or any kind of a statement of God's law. And so this is a gospel-centered vision of the grace and the glory that comes to us in Jesus. Why is it important that we understand it as a vision in terms of the way that we would interpret it and understand it, as opposed to, say, a narrative or an epistle? How does knowing that this is a vision help us to understand it rightly? Well, and especially as we're kind of in this this run in sharper iron of going from the Gospel of John to the Epistles of John and now to the Revelation to John, we have three very different kind of, of genres. And so when you read the Gospel of John, you have all of these stories, narratives, things that happened. Uh, and then in the epistle, you have John unpacking all of the things that happened and telling us why they're important. It's a little more like a sermon or a lecture mm. than it is like a, like a story. And then you have the revelation, which is completely different again. Sometimes people try to read this like a narrative, and that's where some of our, our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, run into some, some trouble with teaching about how Revelation is the blueprint for the way that the world will end or the blueprint for the way that Jesus will come back. The fact that this is a vision, when we take John at his word, uh, where he literally says, this is, this is what I saw, tells us not to take this as the exact things that will happen, but rather these are the, the comforts of the gospel that need to be understood in a similar way that we hear, say, the vision of Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones as a vision, and we don't go looking around for Ezekiel's large living army. Uh, we don't look for this to be fulfilled literally like a narrative, and this isn't just a blueprint of what uh, kind of the post-rapture world might look like. Uh, and I know that gets a lot of attention, uh, especially in some parts of, of the church. But that's not how we approach Revelation, where we say, this is a vision. It's, yeah, it's difficult to understand. There's definitely some, some challenges for us here in understanding this scripture and this word of God. But we take it seriously as a vision, and we let it be a vision, and we don't try to cram this vision into our, our narrative, you know, round holes, yeah. if you will. Yeah, I, I like the way that you, you brought up the vision that Ezekiel gets in chapter 37 of that book, that that was a real vision that Ezekiel saw, and the Lord truly spoke his word to Ezekiel through that vision. But that doesn't mean we should go looking for that valley and that army that Ezekiel saw. So it was a real vision. This isn't some kind of hallucination or anything like that. It is a real vision, but not in the sense that we're going to go looking for it out, you know, to the west or wherever, I'm whatever direction I'm pointing right now. So this is what St. John has. He has this vision of the Son of Man in today's text. We're going to go ahead and read in Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira 
and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." That's our text for today. That is Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. So, Pastor Ill, as you said, this is where the action starts, but there is some introductory material to that action. So what do we find out about John himself in these first couple of verses? As John starts to unpack the action, he, he starts like a lot of good novelists do to just uh, say, or writers, I should say, not that this is a novel, uh, but to say who he is, so I, John, and then he uses some adjectives to describe himself, and he describes himself as a brother and partner in tribulation. Uh, already, as John is writing this, uh, probably in the 90s AD, the persecution of the church has, has already begun. Uh, it's come already even to John, as John has been exiled to this little island of Patmos, uh, sitting there in the Mediterranean Sea. And John is really clear. I am being exiled and I am suffering in this tribulation because of the word of God and because of my witness about who Jesus is. And so as he talks about that, he is suffering the same things that the churches in Asia Minor, those, those churches that you read off before, were also experiencing. The church all over and all believers in Jesus at this time were experiencing that kind of persecution under the Roman government from Jewish leaders and from other local people who didn't understand the church. And so this tribulation wasn't always uh, organized, or at least wasn't always organized in the same direction. But the church was experiencing uh, direct retaliation for speaking the gospel in a way that in the first century A.D. is uh, even more severe than what we're experiencing here in the 21st century in the United States. Um, you know, for our international lis listeners, that might be a little bit different, uh, as, as there are places where the church is most certainly being persecuted here in the United States and around the world. Uh, and it ebbs and flows over time. But during this time, when John was writing this, this was very serious business. And... He's quick to point out he is a partner in that tribulation and a partner in that persecution and suffering uh, along with those, those seven representative churches from 
the west side of Turkey as we know it now. Mm. Yeah, I, the fact that John identifies himself as brother and partner in the tribulation, I think is is very important to a church being persecuted, to know that, that John is one with them and is in fact exiled at the moment. And I think it, it really does help us to it, it add some color to what we were talking about in the epistles of John, where John talks about loving the brothers. What does it mean for us to love the brothers? Well, part of that love is to love those who are being persecuted for the sake of the faith. And and for John himself, you know, the disciple whom Jesus loved, one of the 12, to be a brother to these churches in tribulation, I think had to be a great comfort to them. And should be a great comfort to us as Christians still today to know that when we do experience persecution for the sake of being Christian, however great or small it might be, that we are not alone in that persecution, that we know that Christ has suffered first, we suffer along with him, and we suffer with other Christians now and in the past and in the future. That should bring us great comfort to be united within this fellowship of the Christian church, even in the midst of that suffering, to know that we stand there with the Lord, with his church, even in the midst of all that. That co-participation is really a, a good thing and a big thing. The fact that Jesus shows up to John in the middle of his persecution is also of comfort to us, because this isn't just that Jesus shows up to John, the beloved disciple, to comfort him, but the comfort given to John is also comfort given to you and to me and to all of our listeners as we think, in these days when it's difficult to be a Christian, in these days when uh, the church isn't exactly popular, how do we continue to live as God's people today? We do it under Jesus' comfort, and we do it under Jesus' glory, and our attention is always focused not on the suffering, not on the tribulation, but always on Jesus the Savior. And, and that's where John quickly turns our attention. So he starts out with identifying who he is, where he is, and what he's doing, you know, being there on the island of Patmos. He identifies that this is on the Lord's Day. So this is uh, the first time that kind of worship on a Sunday becomes a big deal uh, in Scripture, as he says, yeah, this was on the Lord's Day, the day of resurrection. This is in part why we gather on Sundays and not on the, the original Sabbath day of Saturday, uh, but we gather for preaching in God's word on Sundays, the day of resurrection, the day that uh, John also received this vision, uh, because this vision is, of course, secondary to the, the glory of Easter. Mm, yeah, I mean, here it is very plainly called the Lord's Day. John, in his gospel, when he records the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection, clearly on Easter, he appears to his disciples that evening. Then he appears on another Sunday, one week later, and, and we talked a little bit about that when we looked in John chapter 21, where Jesus gives that miraculous catch of fish. And although he doesn't identify the day for us there, I like to think it is on a Sunday still, that, that it is not always, but throughout the New Testament, you do see Christians beginning to gather regularly on Sundays. And so John is with other Christians here on the Lord's day. Now in verse 10, he says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, on the one hand, you and I and any Christians who are together in the divine service could say that we are in the Spirit in the sense that we hear the Lord's word, we receive his sacraments, the Spirit has promised to be active in those places. I get the sense that when John says he's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day here in verse 10, he's talking about something different. 
in Scripture, this phrase of being in the Spirit is a loaded term. Uh, and this is the term that's used when Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel have visions, and they all will use that same phrase of uh, being in the Spirit. And so this isn't just that you have received the Holy Spirit, like uh, the folks on, on the day of Pentecost. Uh, and that's a wonderful thing to have received the Holy Spirit. But John is saying something even more particular and, and distinct of he is in the Spirit and had this revelation. We can also similarly think about Peter being in the Spirit uh, when he saw that that great net of, of all of the unclean animals being let down before him and God saying, you know, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Uh, even the, the unclean animals. For some reason, I always get alligators stuck in my head. Um, but these, these visions being in the spirit is definitely one of those things that uh, is, is unique to biblical visions. Well, and the, the connection to the prophets, I think is important. And this is a side point, but I think it's at least worth bringing out that the fact that John says he was in the spirit when these things happened and when he was told to write these things, as we will say, gives us an indication of what John understands himself to be writing. He understands himself to be writing the same thing that the prophets wrote down before him. He understands himself to be writing not his own word, but the word of God. Right. And just like Isaiah describes the heavenly throne room, or Ezekiel describes the Valley of Dry Bones or the Four Living Creatures. Uh, John is describing simply what he sees. Right. And this, in this case, the way he writes is very prophetic and, and not as strongly apostolic. Uh, in, in especially 1 John, he takes a great deal of time to kind of unpack that he is one of Jesus' apostles, one that has been sent out to write this kind of a letter. Uh, here, he doesn't point out that he's an apostle, but rather he writes like a prophet who sees and who, who relates what he sees. One of the old words for prophet that's kind of fallen out of the English language is the word seer. But I really like that word. Uh, a seer is somebody who sees something and tells people about it. John is exactly a seer in this case where he sees his vision and Jesus says, write it down. So John sits down and writes it down. Hmm. Now for all the talk that we've had of visions so far, before John sees something on the Lord day, he actually hears first. And we'll notice this throughout the revelation that there are things that John sees and there are things that John hears. Before he sees, he actually hears, the first thing he hears is a loud voice like a trumpet. Talk about the significance. So we have God's voice being compared to a trumpet in a lot of places. Uh, we can think about how in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, the coming the, and the return of Christ is described with that sound of the trumpet of God. But we can also think back to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai with Moses. And they heard as the Lord was speaking with Moses, the sound of a trumpet along with the thunders coming from the mountaintop. And so when God revealed his presence, it had this kind of uh, trumpet sound to it. And John here records a trumpet sound. This trumpet sound of God speaking is consistent throughout scripture and is one of the first marks that this is a divine revelation. It is consistent with all of the prophecies that the people of God have known before this. God isn't doing a new thing. He's saying something with new clarity. But th this is God speaking and revealing himself the same way as he has done before to Moses, to Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, 
to Peter, and now finally to John. So the voice like a trumpet says to John, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And as you said, we will look at the letters that are addressed individually to those churches as a part of this book in future episodes. Here, let's talk a little about this command to write. We're going to hear it repeated again later. Talk about the significance of Jesus telling John to write these things down. God is very interested in having a written record of this vision, just like God is very interested in uh, having the vision that he gave to Isaiah in the heavenly throne room. Uh, There, there wasn't a command to write, but rather to speak. Or when Moses was at Mount Sinai and had his uh, visions and revelations from God. God actually went to the effort to to write down the things that he wanted the people to know into those stone tablets. God is concerned that this gets written down. This isn't just that uh, John thought this would be a good idea uh, to to write it down, but this is God's idea that the whole church should know what's going on, and the whole church should be able to take comfort from this vision that the Lord has revealed to John. Uh, all of this being scripture is a really big deal. Uh, just like Jeremiah was commanded to write it down, and you have various times with the way that things were written down in the book of Jeremiah, the Lord wants the book of Revelation to be written down and known. And the Lord gives us his inscripturated word uh, so that we have it to, to read and to continually go over, to continually take strength and comfort from. And so John is told to write this down. This is good news for us because if it wasn't written down, if this just stayed in John's head or stayed in the oral tradition, then we probably wouldn't know it or wouldn't know it as faithfully and as truthfully as we know it now that it has been written down for us, that it has been uh translated for us and is provided for us so that we can say, oh, this is God's comfort not only to John on the island of Patmos, but to Christians uh, wherever and whenever we are, even in the year 2023 in the United States or anywhere else that we get to hear God's word. Yeah, I think the fact that Jesus tells John to write this down is is very important for all the reasons that you said. And it it adds to that purpose statement that John gives toward the end of his gospel where he says, There's lots of things that Jesus did that aren't written. These are written so that you may believe. When John writes that, it's not just that John wants you to believe in Jesus. It's that God wants you to believe in Jesus. That's why those things are written down. God wants you to believe in Jesus. And so he provided for these things to be written down in his word so that you and I would hear and believe in Jesus. And that is what the book of Revelation is teaching us to do this morning. We're going to pick up more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Peter Ill this morning about Revelation chapter 1. We will be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran, a college that won't take a dime of federal funding, a college that teaches the best of our Western heritage, a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, 
and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, May 10th. We're studying Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20 with Pastor Peter Ill. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor Ill, prior to the break, we were looking at the words that the voice like a trumpet spoke to John. He was commanded to write the things that he sees in a book, and he's supposed to send that book to the seven churches that are listed. So upon hearing this voice, John turns and he sees... And this is, you know, just paying attention to the words. I turn to see the voice. So he's going to see the voice, the one speaking the voice. And then he turns. The first thing he sees is not the voice. He sees some lampstands. And then he sees someone in the midst of the lampstands. So here we get the vision. Take us into the vision. When he turns and he sees first these lampstands, this is something that sticks out to us because we don't think about lampstands very often. Uh, in part because we're so used to electric lights That's right. that we don't, don't have lampstands. No lampstands um, in this room, know. only overhead lights, fluorescent uh, bulbs. Yeah, not, o- not only no lampstands, but no lamps. Uh, but for us as biblical readers, when we hear lampstand, one of the first things that we might think about is the lampstand that stood in the holy place in the tabernacle or in the temple. Uh, They're close to the incense altar and the table where the the bread of the presence was because this was a place where they talked about the presence of God was uh, here and they had this special lampstand that uh, the Lord told Moses to commission the the makers of the tabernacle to make. And so this lampstand has something to do with the presence of God, but it also has everything to do with the way that Jesus talks about the church being uh, the, the light to the world, and how even Jesus himself is the light of the world in John chapter 8. And so when we see this lampstand, this has everything to do with the church. Jesus is going to go on to tell John at the end of our reading that the lampstands that John sees represent the church. Now, certainly, the seven lampstands and the seven churches, along with the seven stars, this is a number of completeness. So those seven churches in Asia Minor... uh, probably aren't all of the churches in Asia Minor. There were probably lots of other churches in other cities in Asia Minor too, just like there are churches in cities all over the world today. The letter of the Revelation is to them, certainly, but it's also to us. And so we don't say, oh, this was to the Christians in Thyatira, but it has nothing to do with the Christians in, you know, in the St. Louis area. It has nothing to do with the Christians in, in Florida. Or Nobody's left out of this revelation. Uh, instead, everybody is counted in. Everybody in Christ's church has the light of Christ shining on them because as these lampstands are surrounding Jesus, Jesus is even today in the midst of his church kind of reminds me of one of my favorite like, kind of liturgical symbols uh, is to get to read the gospel reading in the middle of the church. Uh, at the church that I serve, we do this for the, the major festivals. So for Christmas and for Easter and for Pentecost, uh, God's word comes down into the middle of God's people because God is in the midst of his people. Jesus is in the midst of his church, especially on these festivals when the word is made flesh, when the word made flesh is raised from the dead, and when the word comes in to the church on Pentecost, it makes sense that this happens in the middle of us. 
Jesus is continually in the middle of us and in the middle of his church. He's not just off at the one end uh, speaking authoritatively, but he comes right smack into the middle. And I think that's a good thing for us to continually remember that Jesus speaks in the middle of his church. Do you have candles that you bring out too? Um, when I have enough acolytes. You have enough, yeah. yeah. Okay. But I mean, yeah. that, that, that carries the same imagery here from Revelation. Not The word comes, the lampstands are right there. What a, what a powerful testimony to that truth. And just a, a couple of things to point out. I, I appreciate the way that you are reading the book of Revelation for us and helping us to see interpretive keys. So for example, how do you know that the seven golden lampstands are the churches? Well, Jesus says it. And that's, I mean, right there in verse 20 of our text. And then the other thing that you're drawing from is the Old Testament, which is also the word of God. So we're letting God's word direct our interpretation and understanding according to the way that he's laid it out for us, rather than putting our own thoughts into the text. This is one of the challenges that we can face about Revelation, is it's really strange, and it's kind of foreign to us. And uh, I just had uh, several requests come in. Hey, pastor, it's time that you teach Revelation and Bible study again. And I love teaching Revelation, but it's almost... I almost want to say, well, tell you what, before we do that, let's go read Daniel, and then we'll read Ezekiel, maybe we'll read a little bit of Exodus, and then after we've done all of that, in the four years of Bible study that we might not all make it through together, then we can do Revelation. Because being able to know and follow what's being revealed to us in Revelation also requires us to keep at least one eye and one ear in the Old Testament and another eye and ear in the Gospel accounts uh, to see what else is going on in Scripture. There's a reason that this comes last. It pulls on everything that comes before it, uh, kind of summing it all together. And so this, this is exactly how we read Revelation. It doesn't stand on its own. And when people run into trouble as they read Revelation, a lot of times it has to do because they're reading it in isolation from the Old Testament. They're reading it in isolation from the Gospels. No, 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 let's not do that. Let's talk about the tabernacle. Let's talk about the temple. Let's talk about Jesus being the light of the world. Let's talk about the Sermon on the Mount. All of those things matter in this Revelation. So John turns, he sees the voice standing in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, and he says who he sees he says, one like a son of man. Before we talk about how John sees this son of man in his appearance, talk simply about that title, son of man. So that title, son of man, comes from the book of Daniel. And this is why we need to read it exactly this way. Um, when in this uh, chapter of Daniel 7, Daniel sees first the ancient of days, and then one appearing before the ancient of days like a son of man. And he goes on to describe how the Son of Man is dressed uh, and what it sounds like and, and so on. And uh, this is the coming of Jesus. And so when Jesus in the Gospels, especially in Matthew and Mark and Luke, refers to himself as the Son of Man, he's using not just a kind of a phrase of, you know, being cheeky and, you know, talking about who he is in maybe kind of a diminutive way, but rather he's talking about, no, no, I'm the one who comes to fulfill what the prophet Daniel said. Jesus is making a, a truth claim about who he is and what he's doing that, if we don't read Daniel, doesn't make sense to us. Jesus is the one who comes to stand in front of the Ancient of Days to do that priestly and kingly and prophetic work. That's exactly what Jesus is up to. 
And Jesus is making a claim when he calls himself a son of man. Now, as John, who heard Jesus call himself son of man, relates it, he talks about that son of man pulling back on that imagery from Daniel one more time to show this isn't just any ordinary guy. This is the one who stands before the Ancient of Days, God the Father, to show who he is and what he's doing and the ultimate glory that this particular person Jesus has. So the one like a son of man standing in front of John, first John describes some clothing that he's wearing. So in verse 13, John says that this son of man is clothed with a long robe and he's got a golden sash around his chest. Talk about those two items of clothing. This is consistent with what the son of man is wearing also in Daniel 7. And so the the long robe, that flowing robe, is compared to an Old Testament priest's robe. Uh, Maybe kind of sort of like what pastors wear today, but the priest's robes were, uh, especially for the high priest, more full of of glory. So today we wear simple white robes, and then we cover them with with sashes and stoles, and you know, if we're fancy, maybe even a, a chasuble or a poncho kind of a thing. But This is really all about showing that Jesus is the great high priest, the one who has come to fulfill the Old Testament priesthood. So the Old Testament priest would, in the tabernacle or the temple, wear a linen robe and then cover it with an ephod and this jeweled breastplate and a a, a headpiece. Had all kinds of, of ritual things to wear that he would be known as the high priest. Jesus comes, as the book of Hebrews Uh, testifies as the great high priest, and he's doing priestly things. He's already in the midst of these lampstands that evokes images of the tabernacle for us, and now he's in priestly clothing like the Son of Man, and uh, we are to look at Jesus as the priest, the great high priest indeed. And so that, uh, that golden sash is also similar to what Daniel sees the heavenly visitor wearing in Daniel chapter 10. And so we have all kinds of things about the book of Daniel and these heavenly visitors. And so as Jesus is wearing this long robe wrapped in a a golden priestly heavenly sash, uh, there's, there's all kinds of notes of, this isn't like anybody else you've ever seen before. There is no mistaking Jesus as just a really important guy. No, he's the most important guy because nobody else dresses like this. Nobody else sounds like this. Nobody else speaks like this. And the rest of the descriptions of Jesus here are similarly completely and totally unique. All right. So we've got a couple pieces of clothing there in verse 13. Then John describes other matters of appearance as parts of of the body of the Son of Man, starting with the hair of his head that's described as white, like wool and snow. He's got eyes that are like a flame of fire feet that's like burnished bronze, and then the voice, which we've heard about the voice already, being a voice of the trumpet. Now the voice is the roar of many waters. So talk to us about hair, eyes, feet, and voice again. So the hair is similar to the hair of the Ancient of Days, as is uh, those eyes that are filled with flames. Uh, Jesus' feet here are described like, like burnished or polished bronze. In Daniel 7, the chair that 
the Ancient of Days sits in is made of burnished or polished bronze. And so all of this is evoking that same image. And for the person who hears this for the first time, who is also familiar with Daniel, uh, they should be kind of with, with wide eyes, with a light bulb dinging over their head going, oh, this sounds exactly like something I've heard before. Uh, it's likely that a lot of our listeners aren't as familiar with Daniel 7 uh, because we're not. We just don't read Daniel as much as uh, John did and as much as the people that John was writing to did. But it was this was a really important piece of literature for them, and it's completely consistent between this revelation and the revelation to Daniel there. And so we read them side by side. In every way, the Ancient of Days and the one like the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is divine. And in every way, Jesus, the perfect image of the Father, is divine here too. All of this goes to point out Jesus' divinity, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the one that John listens to and the one that we listen to. So we've talked about the various parts of his body. And then in verse 16, maybe we can classify these as accessories that he holds. So in his right hand, he's got seven stars. Out of his mouth is coming a sharp two-edged sword. And now his face, and this really isn't an accessory, but another description of his appearance, his face is like the sun shining in full strength. Let's hold on to the matter of stars for just a moment, because we are going to talk about that at the end, where Jesus tells us precisely what these seven stars are. But especially talk to us right now about what's coming out of his mouth and what his face looks like. So this picture of the two-edged sword uh, coming out of Jesus' mouth is is really bizarre. And anytime you kind of see this artistically depicted, it's kind of uncomfortable looking. Uh, it's, it's like a, a sword swallower in reverse, where the handle is kind of oriented towards Jesus' mouth, and, and the pointy bit is, is coming away from Jesus' mouth. Uh, but this is a claim that the word of God and the word that Jesus speaks is powerful, just as Jesus is the one present at creation. Uh, and that word, when God spoke, made things happen. Here, it's still making things happen. And this word of God that is being revealed uh, is effective. Uh, Hebrews will also talk about the word of God like a sharp two-edged sword uh, that cuts through the bone and the marrow. Well, that's exactly what this does here as we are, are cut by God's word and comforted as God's word operates on us. And, and you could even you know, say with surgical precision, perhaps, talks about how God is working in our faith, in our souls, and in our hearts to bring us the comfort of his gospel as he cuts away our sinfulness mm. by his word. Yeah, the, the sharp two-edged sword, Hebrews' background, Isaiah talks about the servant of the Lord as one who has a, a mouth like a sharp sword, the tongue of those who have been taught. Those are some phrases from the servant songs in Isaiah. How about the face shining like the sun? That reminds us both of uh, the way that God shone uh, to Moses at Mount Sinai, even as Moses' own face was transformed and was glowing after he spoke with the Lord. But it also, uh, all of this with the white robe, the white hair, um, and the, the shining face makes us think about Jesus' transfiguration in front of Peter and James and John. And so as we look back at that transfiguration, we say, oh, that's also a really big deal 
the Jesus who stands and speaks to John in this vision is the same Jesus who was transfigured uh, before him. Uh, it makes me wonder how much how much is Jesus' appearance to John just like it was at the Transfiguration, and how much was it different in the Resurrection? Uh, you all can can hang out with me, and we'll just have uh, some show and tell time with, with Saint John, uh, because I really want to know this. I may not matter; it might not matter to me in the Resurrection, right. but I'll try to remember. We'll see. I I do think you're right to see parallels to the Transfiguration, even in what happens next. So John sees this vision of the Son of Man in this way. And when John sees him, he falls at his feet as though dead, which this is the reaction of fear that the disciples on the mountain of transfiguration experience. Talk about the fear that John has here. So, so John falls down. Um, and, and you would have too. And, and, and we would have too. Yeah. Uh, John doesn't exactly start by telling us why he fell down until uh, he just says, as though dead. But then we have these words of Jesus uh, saying, fear not. Um, and the construction here in the Greek is, is one not of just don't fear, but rather stop fearing. Uh, this is the same kind of construction that's used on Easter when, uh, when Mary and the women fall down at Jesus' feet and they grab hold of his ankles. And Jesus says to them, stop being afraid or stop holding on to me in that case. And so how do we know that John was afraid? Because Jesus told him to knock it off. Um, so that's how we know what John was feeling. He just wants to describe the actions themselves. But Jesus has a word for John in John's worship and in John's recognition that this is the divine one. Don't be afraid. Stop being afraid. Hey, church in 2023 that's going through some hard times, stop being afraid. Your Lord Jesus is with you. The same comfort that comes to John in his worship and in his fear comes to you. For all of the scary things, for all of the hard things, your Lord says to you, stop being afraid. Now, stop being afraid because of who Jesus is. So John speaks further, excuse me, Jesus speaks further to John. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. How does that identification of Jesus take away our fear? Jesus is the one who has always been, who will always be. He's the one who died and the one who rose again. There's all kinds of reasons that this is, this is really important. Easter is the very center of the church, and it's the very center of, of how we know Jesus. For us simply to talk about Jesus as a teacher or a miracle worker, uh, I mean, those things are true. But first and foremost, Jesus is the guy who died and rose again. After that, we can talk about his miracles and we can talk about his teachings. But first and foremost, he died and rose again. And because he's the died and rose again guy, he has control over death and Hades. Uh, and I know some translations will take that word Hades and, and they'll translate it as hell. And, and I kind of am glad that our translation today doesn't do that. Uh, the word Hades, as it's understood by, by the Jewish Christians in the first century, is all about the place of the dead or kind of like the Old Testament word Sheol. It's not the same thing as the place where those who don't believe in Jesus go when they die. Uh, and so that's what we think of as hell. This isn't so much the place of judgment, but Jesus is the one who has all control over uh, death and the places of the dead. Uh, you could even say over the graves or over the cemeteries. 
because he is the one who's been there, done that, and come back. He is the one who has conquered and overruled death, and death has no more power and no more dominion because Jesus, who was there at the beginning, before the beginning, and who will be here after the end, is the one who right now in the middle has conquered death and hell. There is nothing nowhere that Jesus hasn't been. There is nothing nowhere that Jesus hasn't conquered. And that is a great deal of comfort for us who feel like we're having all kinds of new and innovative ways to suffer in these days. That's not true. Jesus has been everywhere and always, and Jesus is the one who brings you comfort and there's nothing that Jesus doesn't know. And Jesus is the one who brings his comfort and his peace always and constantly. That is a wonderful comfort. That does take away our fear, for Jesus is the living one, the one who has the keys of death and Hades. And so Jesus then again commands John to write the things down that he's seen. He specifies those things that are and those things that are to take place after this. So again, notice how Jesus is giving us the interpretive key as to how to read the things that we are about to read that John has written down for us. And then, as we pointed out already, Jesus begins some of that interpretation right here in verse 20. We've talked about the seven golden lampstands. Jesus identifies those as the seven churches. And as you pointed out, the fact that he as the Son of Man is in the midst of his church, this is great comfort to us. What does Jesus say about the seven stars? We haven't talked about that yet. What's, what's he say there? He says that those seven stars are the angels of the churches. And this is, this is something I've wondered about for a long time. And uh, if you're expecting a, a really thorough, conclusive answer today, you're not going to get one from me. Um, sorry. Because you can talk about an angel, and we're uh, a lot of times used to in the church talking about angels as those, those spirit messengers of God. Uh, and so we'll talk sometimes about guardian angels or the angels who watch over the souls of those little ones that believe in God. Sometimes we'll talk about those messenger angels like uh, Gabriel. Uh, who come and tell people things on God's behalf, or we'll think about the the soldier angels that God deploys from time to time. And sometimes angels aren't spiritual beings, but they're just messengers. And so is this a case where this is uh, the spirit beings created by God for a special purpose over those seven churches, like every church has an angel watching over it? I really like that idea, but there's not a whole lot of scripture here to go on based on that. Or is it that these angels are the messengers to those churches, namely their pastors? Uh, and I, I, I wish I knew uh, if this was about spiritual angels, those, those created spiritual beings, or if this was about pastors. Uh, but I'm today going to, to kind of firmly speak uh, out of my ignorance and say, regardless of, of what angels these are, God is speaking for and caring for his church. Scripture is clear that God speaks through those messengers in the pastoral office uh, who bring his comfort and the comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ to his church. Scripture is also clear that God watches over his church, and there are angels who watch over the church as well. And so in all of these ways, Christians can and should be comforted by the fact that, one, they have pastors, and two, they have angels sent to them by God to watch over them and the church. Uh, the faithfulness of God's church to himself is something that he cares deeply about. 
the Lord is caring for and protecting his church, both with pastors and with his, his created spiritual beings of angels. Mm. This is a wonderful thing. It's hard to kind of nail it down too, too precisely. Uh, other than to say, we should take great comfort that the Lord cares enough that there are these, these angels that are connected, or these, these stars, angels that are connected to Jesus, pastors, spiritual beings, whatever. Yeah, the church matters to Jesus, and he wants this message to be known, to be spoken about, and his church to be protected. Right, so not only is he standing in the midst of his church, but he is holding in his hand and protection those guardians for his church. Whether And I appreciate you giving us kind of the comfort of both ways to take this. If we're talking about angels as spiritual or spirits who are messengers and God's servants, then he's holding those protectors in his hand. If we're talking about angels in the sense of a messenger, that is a pastor who proclaims the message of God to the congregation, then those pastors are held in the the palm of God's hand as well. Either way, it is a comfort. I have a feeling that we will talk about this as we go through the letters to the churches, because each one is addressed to the angel of the church. So are we talking to the pastor of that church or to a spiritual guardian of that church? Pastor Ill does not have the firm answer for us, but perhaps one of our other guests will, will, I, I will, I will just put my, my cards on the table. I tend to think in this context that the angel of the churches, it seems to me more likely that they're talking about the pastors of the churches, but I respect those who, who have a, a different thought. And I lean, I lean that way too, but I also don't yeah. want to overstate my sure. case. Understood. Yep. Understood. Understood. So that's what we're going to see going forward. These angels of the churches are going to receive messages for the churches. We're going to talk about that in the coming episodes. Oh, i got about two minutes here, Pastor Ill. Help us to wrap things up. Give us the comfort of Revelation 1. As we're at the kind of the tail end of the Easter season this year, we have the chance to hear Jesus is the one who has all authority over death and the places of death. Death no longer has dominion over him. He died and rose again. He is the living one. He is the one who is in the middle of his church. And so in the middle of all of the, the difficult, strange, frustrating things that happen, uh, and even sometimes happen in the church, we have the promise of Jesus. He is right here in the midst of us. Uh, and this seems to echo those, those wonderfully comforting words at the end of Matthew, in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, where Jesus says he, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. He commands his church to go out teaching and uh, to make disciples by teaching and by baptizing. And he declares that he will be with his people always. This is the very same message of Revelation that Jesus is here comforting us, reminding us of his gospel, continually delivering to us his gifts, always and always and always. And he will never leave us and he will never forsake us because he is the one who was and who is and who is to come. He is the first and the last. And that is our comfort now and always. Pastor Peter Ill is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. He has been helping us today to study Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. Pastor Ill, thanks for being our guest today. Always good to be with you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have questions about this part of the book of Revelation, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. You can also use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. Either way, it's always a joy to hear from you. 
Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.